Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with some samples. You guys, allergies suck and it really sucks when my nose is all stuffed up. I can't do anything. I can't even enjoy dinner because I can't taste my food. I can't work out because I feel so tired and I'm out of it and just forget getting ahead on recording the show because I sound so stuffy. But luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've honestly been using Claritin D for my allergies forever and it's always been my go-to. I know when spring hits, I won't have to worry about my eyes watering like crazy and my nose running like a faucet. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Hey, Murder With My Husband listeners. We're here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. There's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually actually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas. Garrett and I sometimes get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found a custom pickleball set for my pickleballer who, as you know, is obsessed with it. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleball gift mode has you covered need to find the perfect gift don't panic try gift mode on etsy now you're listening to an ono media podcast hey everybody welcome back to our podcast this is murder with my husband i'm peyton morland and i'm garrett morland and he's the husband i'm the husband your drink spilled do you know what today is today's monday no No, today is the 200th episode of murder with my husband that is that is a lot 200 freaking episodes who would have thought that i'd still be here hating true crime after 200 (laughs) episodes you guys have not convinced me at all do you feel like maybe when you started this you weren't quite sure what you were getting into um like do you feel like your life is just consumed with true crime truly a subject that you are not fascinated by and that you do you don't enjoy um i feel like we do a good job at or i do a good job at putting it in different boxes compartmentalizing yeah like oh this is here this is here this is here and moving on you know i just can't believe that i remember us just sitting around the table going murder with my husband is that the name yeah and now here we are. Here we are. Like from sitting on the floor recording to crying because I didn't know if I could do another episode to here we are 200 episodes later with this beast, this machine. It's crazy. Well, with that being said, do you have your, I mean, it's not technically 210 seconds. It's not. I don't think it's even close because I don't think we started 10 seconds until... 
I don't know. This is naturally progressed. Probably a while in, right? All right. Well, you ready for your 156th 10 seconds? Well, Peyton and I started a new show. We are two episodes in. I don't even know how many episodes there are. I think we're like three. We watched quite a few. And yeah, we might be three. And it's called Fool Me Once on Netflix. I don't know how many more there are. Maybe there's only three. I thought it said limited series. So we started that. We'll see how it goes. I think it's pretty good so far. Peyton doesn't really like it, um, but she doesn't like a ton of TV shows. So I'm trying to get her into it. I also started working out again, back in action, healthy, might be running, might be lifting weights, going to keep it a mystery for now. Yeah, that's kind of all I got this week for 10 seconds. So let's hop into this week's episode. A reminder before we get into today's episode, we are streaming every Thursday at 5.30 PST on Twitch. We're dissecting true crime footage, reacting to body cam footage, just kind of talking about anything true crime, hanging out. It's usually for about two hours, 5.30 to 7.30, an hour and a half or so. So come and join us. There are links all over in our social media, the podcast, everywhere, and we'd love for you to join. Peyton's actually been really liking it. Oh, yeah. Streaming has been so fun. Again, we are doing that on Thursdays at 5.30 PT. Um, Our Twitch name is The MWMH. You can check us out and we'll see you Thursday. So our sources for this episode are Daughter's Deadly Deception, the Jennifer Pan story by Jeremy Grimaldi, the Washington Post, Ranker.com, CBS News, CrimeTraveler.org, the Toronto Star, CTV News, Toronto, YorkRegion.com, TorontoLife.com, AllThat'sInteresting.com, and Medium.com. Trigger warning, this episode features discussions of suicidal ideation, so please listen with care. I told you last week that I picked this episode specifically for our 200th episode. Mm -hmm. And it was because when I first learned about this story, um, it really, really stuck with me, one that I remember. And so I'm really excited for you to listen to it. So most of us have had those moments as teenagers, times when we felt like we didn't have the freedom we deserved. When we got in trouble for doing something we really wanted to do or were simply told that a sleepover, a concert, or a party was off limits. And what can end up happening in those situations? Kids sometimes come up with lies, right? They concoct elaborate stories to manipulate their parents into getting their way regardless. Now, typically those lies are harmless, usually debunked by clever parents who tried similar stunts back in their day. But in the matter of today's case, one young woman's lies spiraled a bit out of control. She crafted a long con for her freedom, one that didn't stop once she left high school, but continued for the next several years, resulting in an ending so dark, so lethal, that even the most elaborate lies couldn't change her fate. So for today's case, we're jumping back to 2010, to a white collar area of Ontario, Canada, in the city of Markham, to be exact. There, in a large two-story home on a quiet residential street, live Hue Han Pan and his wife, Bic Pan. The Pans had worked hard to get to this point in their lives, to a place where they could both be socially and financially secure. And for them, it was a huge matter of pride. Han, born and raised in Vietnam, moved to Canada as a political refugee in 1979 following the Vietnam War when he disembarked the long and excruciating boat ride from Southeast Asia, the 26-year-old Han hardly spoke any English and had close to zero dollars in his pocket. 
Still, he used his degree in diesel mechanics to find work in the Canadian automotive industry. And from there, he began to build a new life for himself in Ontario. It was during this time that he reconnected with an old acquaintance from Vietnam, a young woman named Bikha Luong. Before long, the two fell in love, got married, and decided to continue life's journey together. They spent years working alongside each other on assembly lines of car part manufacturers, dreaming of the day when they could finally start their own little family. And with their hard work and dedication, that day finally came in 1986. The couple welcomed their first child together on June 17th, a little girl they named Jennifer. Three years later, she was followed by a little boy named Felix. Now, over time, Han climbed the ladder at work, enough that his salary allowed Bick to take on the role of a stay-at-home mom. In fact, by 2010, Han was doing so well for himself, the family had upgraded their vehicles, now driving a Lexus and a Mercedes. They'd paid off the mortgage on their home and had banked several hundred thousand dollars on top of that. So it's safe to say the family was doing well for themselves in Canada. For all intents and purposes, they were an immigrant success story. But while they'd left their old country behind, there were still many Vietnamese traditions practiced within their four walls. Growing up, the family continued to speak Vietnamese or Cantonese. When they were home, Han took on the role of the disciplinarian, while Bic would be the calming peacemaker of the house. They also had extremely high expectations for both of their children. This was something that their daughter, Jennifer, desperately tried to keep up with over the years. By age four, Jennifer was enrolled in rigorous piano lessons. And when she wasn't practicing piano, she was on the ice engaging in competitive figure skating. By elementary school, she had acquired a case full of trophies with her sights set on competing at nationals, maybe even the Olympics one day. Some nights, Jennifer wouldn't come home from practice until 10 p.m. only to do her homework until midnight. Then she'd wake up early to start the same routine over again. The pressure was a lot for little Jennifer until she tore one of the ligaments in her knee and was forced off the ice for good. It was a huge letdown for Jennifer, who for the last decade had placed a lot of her self-worth in the Olympic sport. But even worse was the disappointment she felt from her parents once they learned that those dreams were over. As a result, Jennifer spent her high school years trying to overcompensate, looking to impress Bick and Han at every turn. In the pan house, mediocrity would not be accepted. Luckily for Jennifer, she graduated high school with high honors and had been admitted to the University of Toronto to study pharmacology. Bick and Han were more than proud of their little girl, who they always hoped would go on to work in the medical field. Throughout her studies, Jennifer mostly still lived at home, always staying close to her family, as was common in a Vietnamese household. Even if she wanted to go live on campus or at college housing, she would not have been allowed to. Mm, So they wanted her to live at home. Yes. Or be close to home. Yes. But on November 8th, 2010, things would forever change for the 24-year-old Jennifer and the entire Pan family. That day started like any other. Jennifer spent most of the afternoon practicing piano while her father worked and her mother ran errands. 
Felix, by this point, was living about 45 minutes away from home where he was studying at McMaster University. So when dinner time rolled around, only Jennifer and Bick shared a meal together. Han took his food and retired to his study, as he often did, to unwind and read the Vietnamese news. After cleaning up, Bick went to her weekly line dancing class at a nearby church while Jennifer had a friend over to watch some television. Jennifer called it a night at around 8.30 p.m. and went upstairs where Han was also sleeping. Then Bick returned home around an hour later at 9.30 p.m. Bick put on her pajamas and retired in front of the television, soaking her feet in a bath as she often did after her dancing class. But a short while later... Jennifer heard something strange going on downstairs. Bick sounded like she was rummaging through drawers and she was yelling at her husband to get downstairs. The thing that struck Jennifer most was that her mother was speaking English, something she never did in the confines of their own home. Moments later, Han himself was woken up, not by the sounds of Bick yelling, but instead by a masked man Mm. hovering over his bed with a gun pointed at his face. The intruder was screaming at him, asking where they hid their money. Still half asleep, the man then grabbed the 57-year-old Han by the back of the neck and led him downstairs, where another masked intruder was pointing a gun at his wife. Jeez, man. Han assumed these men were just there to rob them, so he was willing to cooperate with their demands. The problem was... This wasn't the first time the Pans had been in this situation. They'd been robbed years ago in an old house, and ever since, the couple refused to keep large sums of cash inside their home. Okay. So yep. Han told the robbers that he had $60 in his pants upstairs, but that was really it. Unfortunately, this response was met with a punch in the head as one of the robbers insisted Han was lying. And that's when Bick started begging, saying, please, you can hurt us, just don't hurt our daughter. And seemingly agreeing to those demands, the couple was then led by gunpoint to the basement of the home. What they didn't know was that Jennifer was still upstairs, being held captive by a third intruder. Oh, there's three of them. After she was forced to comb the house for money, she herself was tied up and kept separate from her parents. And that's when Jennifer heard a gunshot come from the basement, then another and another. Downstairs, one bullet had struck Han in the shoulder. The other went through his face, just missing his eye. Bick, on the other hand, was shot three times, once through her neck, another through her right shoulder, and a final fatal blow through her skull. I don't understand. They just, yeah, okay. With both Han and Bick unconscious, the intruders booked it out of the house. But seconds later... Han regained consciousness. He's alive? Yes. That's when he realized his wife of 30 years wouldn't be as lucky. She was now sitting in a pool of her own blood, the life already draining from her body. Yeah. Han managed to get himself to his feet. He then made his way upstairs and passed his daughter, who was already dialing 911. His cries were so desperate, so heart-wrenching. They could be heard by the operator in the background. In fact, here's a small clip from Jennifer's oh. call. Where are you? What? Avenue. Avenue Road. Yes. Can you spell the name for me, please? Dad? Oh, 
And Han, who still isn't perfectly fluent in English, tries to explain through the tears that someone robbed the home and that his wife and daughter are still inside. When they discover Jennifer, she's lying on her side. Her hands are still bound together and affixed to the banister. Her ankles are also cinched together with a boot lace. And what they find odd is the house doesn't look ransacked. Everything looks to be in place, which is very unusual for a robbery, particularly one as violent as this. Moments later, paramedics rush in and try to revive Bick. Her silk Winnie the Pooh pajamas are completely stained with her blood. I think it's so weird that they actually left the daughter alone and then killed the parents. She's tied up. Yeah, but didn't kill her. Yeah, it didn't seems shoot so strange. Not that it just seems strange, does it not? Yeah, I don't know. Well, maybe I mean it's a child. I mean it's not. It's an adult, but it is their kid. So maybe they were just you know to play devil's advocate. They're all they're just like, oh yeah, let's have some mercy and just kill the parents. That's just so strange. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So like we all have stuff that stresses us out, right? Whether it's big or small, it can really get to us if we keep it all inside. And therapy is a safe space to just let it all out and figure out how to deal with the stuff that's weighing us down. And I am such a huge advocate for therapy. It truly has changed my life for the better. I could go on and on. I feel like I have the tools now to handle panic attacks or just major stressors in life and also a safe space to say whatever I need to say to an unbiased party. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash husband today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash husband. Okay, everyone knows that finding the perfect t-shirt can be a challenge. I've always had problems, whether it's with the fit or the quality. Luckily, the perfect t-shirt does exist and you can find it at Skims. From crop silhouettes to long sleeve layering tees, there is a style for everyone. And you guys know that I've been wearing Skims for a while and I recently just tried another t-shirt of theirs. It's the best form-fitting t-shirt I have ever had. I just got the Skims Soft Smoothing t-shirt and it is the most flattering t-shirt. The fabric is smooth. It's versatile. I can wear it running errands or literally dress it up for a date night. Look, I'm just here to be a witness and let and let everyone know that Payne's not lying. She loves her skim stuff. She looks good in her skim stuff. Only I've seen it, obviously. Not my tea. I guess guess everyone's seen her t-shirts. But she loves her skim stuff, and I'm just an eyewitness. Shop the Skims t-shirt shop at skims.com, now available in sizes extra, extra small through 4X. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know that we sent you. So after you place your order, select podcast in the survey, and then select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. You guys, we love you so much. We love Skims. Now let's get back to the episode. So... Although they're trying, there's nothing they can do to bring her back. As Jennifer is led outside to be examined by paramedics, she sees her father on a stretcher getting placed into an ambulance. Later, she'll learn that he's been placed in a medically induced coma and his chances of survival are slim. After Jennifer is cleared by doctors herself that night, Markham police ask if she'd be willing to come to the station for questioning. It's around 2 a.m. on November 9th when Jennifer takes a seat in an interview room across from two detectives. And once her mother's death is mentioned, it seems to 
all hit Jennifer in that moment. Yeah, I can imagine. She starts sobbing uncontrollably, unable to get a word out. But one of the detectives picks up on something. When Jennifer uses a tissue to dab her tears away, it stays completely dry. Still, they need to get to the bottom of what happened, so they ask Jennifer to recount her experience. No, there's no way you're going with the story where I think you are. Now, she believes her parents were being uncooperative with the robbers, and that's why they were shot and killed. Jennifer, however, was approached by one of the assailants and led them to $2,000 cash, which she had been saving to buy a iPhone. Okay. So she thinks this is why her life was spared, because she actually went along with the robbers. But when police have her recount the events a second time, there's a lot that changes in her story. For example, the first time she says she never saw her mother when she came home from line dancing class. But on the second round, she says, oh, wait, she did come downstairs to say goodnight to her. In the second retelling, she also changes the amount of money she handed over from $2,000 to $2,500. And she claims one of the men tied her so tightly with the shoelace it actually hurt. But here's the thing. There's no bruising or markings left around Jennifer's wrists or ankles. There's also the question of how Jennifer called 911 with her hands bound behind her back. When detectives asked her this, Jennifer seemingly panicked for a moment. She then told them she'd had her cell phone tucked into the waist of her yoga pants and managed to wiggle free enough to place the call and put it on speaker at full volume. And even if Jennifer's phone call did make sense, there were other details that didn't. Like the fact that the keys to Bix's Lexus were on a tray right by the front door. If these men were looking for a payday, wouldn't they have just stolen the vehicle? Mm -hmm. Detectives also knew that random home invasions happened extremely rarely. Typically, homes are selected due to a tip. Someone has tons of cash, expensive bags, pricey jewelry. Some guarantee that their efforts are going to pay off. Not to mention the city of Markham was one of the safest areas in Ontario. In a city of 1 million people, they'd only experienced a total of 14 home invasions the year prior. But here's one of the most baffling details that detectives can't stop thinking about. Jennifer says her father never came to check on her. Instead, he ran out of the house and onto the front lawn calling for help after the intruders left. No matter how injured he was, you would imagine a parent would rush to check on their child before anything else, right? Mm. Well, if you... I don't know. I mean, yes and no. If I was shot in the face, I don't know. Maybe if I'd be thinking that. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe I'd be running out the front door like somebody help me. But he doesn't know at this point that his daughter is untouched. True. Yeah, that's true. So wouldn't you run up to say, did they hurt my daughter? I don't know. I don't know. So a few days later, police actually got an answer to this question. On November 12th, Han came out of his medically induced coma. Oh, freaking way. He survived the attacks, beat the odds. But it's not good for Jennifer because as soon as he's able to talk, he offers a critical piece of information. He says that when he was being led downstairs with his wife, you know, during the robbery, Jennifer was casually talking with one of the robbers. She was not tied up at all. She was walking freely around their house. It wasn't until the police got there that her hands and ankles were suddenly bound. How, how, how can you do this to your parents? We did another case. I mean, I guess this hasn't been solved yet. We'll get there. But we did another case where a kid beat his parents himself. Do you remember what case that was or what episode? 
That was so disturbing. I can't believe we're going back there again. Okay. You don't, well, you're smiling like I I'm not smiling at the story. No, but. Um, I see the parallels between the story, but because I know both stories, they seem so different in my head. Okay, let's keep going. Um, But, well, yeah, we'll keep going. So police can't help but wonder, right? Did Jennifer have some hand in orchestrating this whole thing? Like it hits him at this point. Her interrogation was a little weird. Um, you know, she she kind of froze up when they asked her about the how she was able to make the phone call. Yeah. And then her dad's like, no, no, no. She was just hanging out with the robbers while we were being led downstairs to be shot in the face and killed. And if so, if she did have a hand in it, what on earth could have driven her to this point? Like, why even orchestrate this? So, as I mentioned before, it was no secret that the Pans were pretty hard on Jennifer for a lot of her life. Mostly, they wanted her to create her own success, just like Bick and Han had done for themselves. But those incredibly high standards weren't something that came easy for Jennifer. In fact, it started well before Jennifer had injured her knee and stopped skating. Jennifer said the first time she really began to struggle was in eighth grade when she realized she wasn't going to be made valedictorian. It was the first time Jennifer wondered what the point of all of her hard work was if it wasn't going to reap any rewards. So when high school came around, Jennifer found herself slacking off a little bit. If her grades weren't going to be perfect, why bother at all? Mm. Jennifer's average dropped to a C where she knew was not going to be acceptable to her parents. So she found a way around it. She began forging report cards and lying to her parents about her classwork. But even with these fake grades, Jennifer's parents tightened their reins and upped their expectations. She wasn't allowed to attend sleepovers, parties, any other activity that could distract her from keeping her grades up. Dating, wearing makeup, even socializing with the opposite sex was absolutely out of the question. Okay. This was a rule her parents actually told her they would be implementing until she finished college which was a particularly hard role for Jennifer to follow, especially when she got to junior year of high school, because that's when she met the love of her life, a half Chinese, half Filipino boy named Daniel Wong. The two met in the school's marching band. And not only did Daniel have the allure of being a year older than Jennifer, his parents gave him a lot more freedom than hers did. Over time, Jennifer began sneaking around, calling him late to chat or texting all hours of the night. Just kind of being a typical high school kid. Right? Like, it's nothing crazy. At least in America. I mean, I know culture is different around yeah. the world, but... She'd yeah. lie to her parents and sneak off with him after school, secretly spending time at his house on the weekends. The kind of stuff a lot of teenagers do. Yeah. Meanwhile, Jennifer kept the relationship completely a secret from her parents for as long as she could, because this is against the rules. She's not even allowed to talk two boys, let alone date one. She knew they would not approve. Mainly also because Daniel was kind of caught up with some shady characters around Ontario. Daniel, looking for new ways to increase his income, began selling weed on the side, hoping to save up for a new car. Okay. This actually led to a few different arrests over the years, which of course made her even more wary to tell her parents about her boyfriend. But Jennifer liked that she was dating a bad boy, someone with an edge. By her senior year of high school, she'd gotten so good at lying to her parents that it became second nature. And frankly, Jennifer never saw a reason to come clean. She truly believed that everything would work itself out as soon as she graduated high school and went off to college. She'd get a fresh start, a chance to press the reset button in less than a year. 
She even got an early acceptance to Ryerson University in Toronto. But a few months shy of graduation. How did she get all those acceptance letters if her grades were C's? Was she forging her transcripts to get into the college as well, maybe? You're not sure. Well, hear me out. Okay. We're about to get there. Okay, okay. A few months shy of graduation, Jennifer received some news that would complicate her life a little further. She was failing calculus, and she wasn't going to be able to graduate without the credit. I would have failed calculus too, Jennifer. Jennifer was at a loss. How could she possibly tell her parents she was failing a class when all of her report cards that she was bringing home said she was excelling, A plus, A plus. And she could forget mentioning that Ryerson had pulled their acceptance for the fall because of it. So this college says, "Mm, no, you're actually not coming. So what does Jennifer do to get around this? She buries herself into more lies, of course. When fall rolled around, her parents bought her a new laptop and drove her to her first day on campus. Oh, no. Oh, no. Every day, she pretended to go to class. Oh, no. But instead, she sat in the library for hours, doctoring fake exams, papers, and even scholarship letters. She... That's a ton of work. She would go to school every day, but she wasn't actually going to school. In the evenings, she brought home biology and physics textbooks and pretended to continue her studies. Oh my gosh, this is so deep. And she continued the charade at Ryerson for two more years. Then she took it a step further and pretended to transfer to the University of Toronto. Another lie that was convincing enough for her parents to believe. It helped that Jennifer didn't spend every night at home. She had asked her parents if she could spend a few weekends at her friend Topaz's house to so the commute wouldn't be as long from home. And her parents had shockingly obliged. Over time, though, Jennifer began spending those evenings at Daniel's house instead, only returning to her parents on the weekends. Another two years passed with her fooling Bick and Han, and eventually it was time for her to, quote, graduate from the University of Toronto. Holy crap, she went so hard. But since Jennifer had never even enrolled, she'd never even gone to one day of college, it was a bit problematic when her parents asked about getting tickets for her ceremony. Of course, Jennifer had a perfectly fabricated plan for that as well. She purchased a forged degree off the internet for $500, which Daniel helped her with. She told Bick and Han that she had waited too long and the tickets were already sold out. And then when Han asked to see photos from the ceremony, Jennifer told him that her friend had accidentally flown back to Hong Kong without giving any of the photos to her. There's no way. She just lie after lie. There's no way you believe that as a parent though, right? Well, they kind of do. The lies don't stop after this fake graduation. Jennifer told her father that she had gotten a job at Toronto's Children's Hospital. And this is where Han's suspicions started to kind of reach a crescendo. While he'd certainly been wary of her stories in the past, this job at the hospital wasn't making a lot of sense. Jennifer wasn't coming home with any scrubs, uniforms, badges, anything to prove she'd ever even stepped foot in the hospital. And that was enough for Han to finally take action. He insisted on driving her to work one morning, and when they got to the hospital, Jennifer bolted out of the car and into the emergency waiting room, where she hid for several hours, praying her father wouldn't come inside. He didn't, but back home, her mother was doing her own due diligence. Mm. She'd called her friend Topaz, the one Jennifer was supposedly living with during the weekdays at school, but she calls only to find that Jennifer had actually been staying at Daniels and Topaz knew nothing about this job at the hospital. That's when it really came crashing down for Jennifer. So when she comes home that evening from work, from 
hiding in the ER. Her father demanded she tell them the truth about everything. And finally, Jennifer admitted, not only was she not working at the hospital, she never even went to University of Toronto or Ryerson. In fact, she'd never even graduated high school. I don't understand how you can lie for that many years. That's a long time. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about a year. We're talking about five, four, five, six years. She doesn't even graduate high school. She goes to college. That is next level. Yeah. So with the truth finally exposed, Han and Bic were livid. Then Han gave her two options. Get out and go live with Daniel and never come back. Or choose us. Get on the straight and narrow and never see that Daniel boy again. Okay. What they didn't realize was Daniel wasn't the catalyst for Jennifer's spiral. He was just a pawn in it. Still, shockingly, Jennifer chose the first option to stay home, suffer the consequences, and turn her life around. At least now that lies could finally stop and this weight she'd been bearing could be lifted off her shoulders. After that, Jennifer lost the privileges her parents had awarded her. There was no cell phone, no computer, no leaving the house without the company of her mother. By this point, though, Jennifer was 23 years old. Mm. So they take her cell phone away. They're like, you can't leave the home without us. And a few of her friends were wondering, why on earth did you choose to stay at home and live with your family if this was their reaction? Like if they gave you the option to go to leave, leave, why not just move out, start a life of your own? But Jennifer admitted she wasn't ready to cut her parents out of her life forever. Like, truly, even at 23, being told, choose us or choose them, abandon your family, never see us again, and go live this life or stick with us. I mean, that is a really hard thing at 23. She knew that if she left, that would be the last time she ever spoke to them. And culturally, it just didn't feel like an option. This wasn't the house that she was brought up in. So over the next few months of her grounding, Jennifer did start to turn herself around. She enrolled in a calculus course so she could finally get that last credit and graduate high school. She continued to teach piano lessons. She even got accepted, for real this time, to Scarborough Centennial College for January of 2011. But all of this was taking a serious toll on her relationship, still secret, relationship with Daniel. Not only was she forbidden from seeing him, her parents were tracking her communication with him as well. And by that spring of 2010, Daniel got tired of waiting around. He told Jennifer that he'd met someone new, that the relationship between the two of them was over. And that's when something inside Jennifer snapped. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord. And others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, With Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. All right, you guys, Audible is your one-stop app for all things audio entertainment, from bestsellers and the latest releases to celebrity memoirs and gripping mysteries. Audible's library is brimming with countless genres to love and new discoveries to make. Dive into an unparalleled selection of audiobooks and explore exclusive Audible originals brought to life by top celebrities, renowned experts, and fresh voices. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Plus, you can enjoy unlimited access to a growing selection of audiobooks, Audible originals, and podcasts such as 
murder with my husband. Honestly, I love Audible because I will get into a story while I'm cleaning or driving. Sometimes I get so hooked listening to a story, I just end up finding new places to clean or just end up sitting in my car, which drives Garrett nuts, but I'm out there sitting there. New members can explore Audible free for 30 days. Also this March through May, the Audible sweep you into a realm of intrigue and suspense with their mystery and thriller collection, featuring exclusive new thrillers from their best-selling authors. Their selection is designed to captivate and surprise, ensuring your heart rate remains as elevated as your imagination. New members can try Audible for free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash MWMH or text MWMH to 500-500. That's audible.com slash MWMH or text MWMH to 500-500. Not knowing how to handle the rejection from Daniel, Jennifer reconnected with another old high school flame to fill the void, a man named Andrew Montmayer. Jennifer opened up to Andrew about her situation, primarily how her father had ruined her relationship with the love of her life, Daniel Wong. And that's when Andrew pitched her a solution. No freaking way, dude. Why not just kill your dad? That's when something clicked for Jennifer. Maybe she was going about her issues the wrong way. Maybe her father was the real problem to everything that ever went wrong in her life. After that conversation, Jennifer met up with Andrew's roommate, a kid named Ricardo Duncan, who Andrew said could perform the hit for the right price. During that meeting, Jennifer gave Ricardo $1,500, and he promised he'd follow up soon with the time and place. Only he never did. Jennifer had been scammed. Okay. But the idea had already been firmly cemented in Jennifer's mind. She didn't care that she was out $1,500 of her own money. She wanted to see this plan through. And that's when she turned to the only other person she believed could possibly help her out of her situation. Daniel. Daniel Wong. Got it. So over the summer of 2010, Jennifer began slowly seducing Daniel, trying to get him back into her life. And it worked. Once the two were back in constant communication, Jennifer pitched her plan to Daniel. What if they just got rid of her dad so they could be truly together? I mean, her dad was the problem. Her dad was the reason they couldn't communicate. Or they could get rid of both of her parents, collect on her estate a total of half a million dollars, and be together wherever and however they desire. Do you know how they were communicating? Okay, from the way it made, like the sources made it sound, I'm pretty sure she had a secret phone. She would sneak off and try to see him. She was definitely doing it all by secret. Um, And it might not have even been a phone. It could have been like an iPod but she was secretly communicating with him from her house. Okay. So for Daniel, who'd always been the kind of hustle, the plan sounded ideal. All he had to do was connect Jennifer to the right people and he could kind of stay out of it, which wasn't hard to do because by this point, Daniel had been well-rooted in the local drug scene and he was associated with some shady players, including a man named Leonard Crawford, who was also known as Homeboy. So Daniel made a few calls to Homeboy and learned that a contract killing organized by him would cost about $20,000. Oh, it's crazy that you can just hire someone. That's real. It's a real thing. You can actually contract hire someone to kill someone. Well, this was something Jennifer would easily have once she gained access to her deceased parents' estate, right? So they made a deal and set the plan in motion. Homeboy recruited the help of two other men named Eric Cardi and David Milvaganam. They made a few trips past the Pan's home that fall to assess the scene. And on the morning of November 8th, 2010, Jennifer received a text from Homeboy. That night, it was go time. Which 
is insane because this is all going to be documented. The police are going to start looking at her phone. It's all just going to come to fruition. Like it's all going to come. Well, and um, her father down. lived. And her father lived. Yes. She's not getting that estate or that She's 20K. She's not getting that estate. And her father's alive. It is going to know everything. Well, and saw her in cahoots with the robbers. Oh, I mean, she deserves it though. I don't No, I, I don't feel bad. So around 9.35 p.m., Jennifer received a call from David, one of the hitmen, to say they were on their way. She went downstairs, said goodnight to her mom, and then discreetly unlocked the front door of the house. At 10.02, Jennifer switched a light on in the upstairs window to signal that everyone was in place. And about 10 minutes later, the three intruders came barreling through the front door, guns in hand. And well, you know how the rest of the yeah. story went down. So now it makes sense why Han saw his daughter speaking to the intruders like she knew them because she did. This was a detail that actually had been confirmed two days before Han had even woken up from his coma. This was confirmed by Daniel Wong. On November 10th, Daniel had been called down to the station and that day he spilled everything. Oh, he just ratted her out. He told police about Jennifer's lies, her plan to kill her parents, and the fact that he'd help put her in touch with the gunman. The cards were out on the table. Now all police needed was for Jennifer to fess up. So on November 22nd, Jennifer was called in for a third interview. And instead of admitting to the hit, she threw the police a bit of a curveball. She claimed the whole operation had gone terribly wrong and that the three men were actually hired to kill her. She told detectives that she had felt like such a failure by this point in life that suicide appeared to be the best and only option. The thing was, she couldn't do it herself. Jennifer stuck to this story for the next four hours, but she didn't realize that she'd already implicated herself here. She'd admitted to being at the center of a conspiracy, intentional or not, one where she hired a hitman and put her parents' lives at risk. But I assume it would be less of a charge or less time than if she admitted to hiring people to kill them. That, Which it's, I'm not gonna lie, it's kind of genius what... She's quickly saying, the lie. yeah how quickly the lie came up but also um it could also make her feel better it makes her look yeah, better definitely yeah, for sure uh, so she was arrested that afternoon for conspiracy to commit murder attempted murder and first degree murder but jennifer wasn't the only one who'd be paying the price for this elaborate crime on december 26 2011 daniel wong was arrested under those same charges yep. that spring david milvaganam eric carty and homeboy leonard Lenford Crawford, were met with the same fate. All five of them were tried together beginning in March of 2014. A hearing that spanned 10 months until Judgment Day finally arrived on December 13th of that year. One detail that was never uncovered was who actually pulled the trigger that ended Bick's life and nearly took Hans as well. But that didn't matter to the jury when it came time to deliver a verdict. Jennifer was found guilty of first-degree murder and given life in prison, only eligible for parole after 25 years. She was also given a life sentence for the attempted murder of her father. Daniel, David, and Homeboy received the same exact sentence. However, Eric Cardi's trial was split off after his counsel got sick. And as a result, he ended up with a lighter sentence of 18 years for conspiracy to commit murder with the possibility of parole after nine. Okay. Only Eric never got the chance of that parole hearing. He was stabbed to death in prison in Holy April crap. of 2018. So as of this recording, Jennifer is being held at the Grand Valley Institution for Women about a half hour outside of Toronto. 
During the hearing, her father, Han, requested a court order that banned Jennifer from ever speaking to him or any family members again. I mean, don't blame the guy at all. And those rules still seem to apply to Jennifer to this day. Since she began serving her time, no one from her family has been there to visit her. This is despite the fact that she strongly maintains her innocence and is still pushing the suicide plot explanation. She was, however, able to write one final love letter to Daniel Wong in which she signed off with a love always, although it's unclear if Jennifer Pan ever received a response. Probably not. And that is the story of Bick and Han Pan and how their lives were taken, set up by their own daughter. Could you imagine you have a wife that you love dearly, you have a kid that you bring into this world, order only for them to kill your wife and then try to kill you i don't know it's so it's actually interesting because there is some conversation around this specific case in true crime and it involves Mm, i think i know where you're going yep it involves we don't actually know the true story of was jennifer actually in a toxic relationship with her parents at 23 years old and couldn't see any other way out or was she diabolical and selfish and couldn't see? I'm going to say diabolical considering she's started lying since she's 14. I mean, there are, I mean, it's obvious there was a very high expectation of yes, her and pressure put which, on her. Which, I mean, I feel like in a lot of Asian cultures, that's that happens. That's it's, I feel like that's, it's pretty prominent, but you don't see them hiring people right. to kill their parents every single day, you know? And I also... You know, he gave her an out. Yeah, yeah. She could have left. He said, leave. Like, you don't, you're 23. You don't have to stay here anymore. I mean, you're not going to talk to us. But is that not what happened anyways? Just crazy. I, that's so sad. And at what point did she decide killing was better than just leaving? It's because she wanted the money. She wanted the money. Which at At that point. Again, that's, you're wrong. Like, she's wrong. Whatever she did is, she did it for the money. Mm Mm-hmm. She's evil. I mean, killing your parents is wrong unless it's self-defense in any way. And she did it because she wanted the money. It wasn't any self-defense. Mm-hmm. She said, oh, I, like, I want the money and she, to live with Daniel. She for sure set it up as yes. a killing because there's no way she could make that 911 call tied up with her hands behind her back. And like, there's no way to actually no. get that phone out. Yeah, she's guilty. And so she made that 911 call that you heard. You heard how crazy and scary that call was. Yeah. And she made that while probably not even tied up. Yeah. While just chilling. And if they were really there to kill her, her parents probably wouldn't have been tied up. Yeah. All right, you guys, that is our 200th episode. Tune in this week. We have bonus content coming for Apple subscribers and patrons alike. Um, And then don't forget that we are streaming on Twitch this Thursday, 5.30 p.m. PT. And we'll see you there. I love it. I hate it. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.